Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here at First Christian Church. As uh, Pastor Jonathan has just mentioned, for those of you here in the West, we're very glad you're with us. And those in the East, I know that you're, I was in there earlier and listening to you worship. That's cool stuff. And uh, everybody online, we're glad you're with us. To our brothers and sisters in Lovington as well. Welcome. And uh, let me introduce myself for guests. My name is Wayne, and I'm part of the pastoral team. And before we even start, do we have to, we, we should absolutely make a comment about the Illini yesterday, right? Way to go, way to go. So I figured out what happened. So when we came into worship at five o'clock yesterday afternoon, it was like 10,000 to zero, almost. It seemed that way, right? Was it 28 to three or something like that? And we came in here, and then while I was preaching, the Illini came back and won. So what do you think about that? Maybe I should go stand in the student section from now on and preach during every game. They probably won't invite me, but nonetheless. So congrats to all the Illini fans. A great day yesterday. And who knows what the future holds. It would be very cool. Why don't you take your Bible, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 16 while you're looking for that. Reminder, you perhaps you saw as you came into the building today, that this is the day. We've been waiting for this for almost 12 months now when we are going to start the renovations. And uh, from stage to stage renovations, we start here on the, uh, in the West Auditorium, right at the front of this stage. We go all the way, all the pews come up, all the way through to the lobby, the, the floors come there, into the atrium, and all the way into the West Auditorium, to the front of that stage. All new flooring and new furniture and everything. So to that extent, we're starting at 12.30 this afternoon. If you're coming and being part of that, gloves and a pair of pliers or vice grips would be helpful. And off we go. We've got it all arranged. It's going to be a blast. Uh, I had somebody come to me the other, the, early this morning and say, so what's going on? I forget when this starts. I said, it starts today at 1230. I said, you're welcome to come. He says, no, he knows all about tearing out carpet because he did it in his, or was about to do it in his living room. I said, well, you can come practice. He may show up. You never know. You can come practice tearing out your car, living room carpet here in this building today. All right. 1230 this afternoon. So I want to start today uh, by making an observation about it's, it's no longer a fad, it seems to me, but a cultural phenomena that our nation has probably shifted in the last 25 to 30 years particularly in the last 15 years, and that is up until more recent years, for a person to have a tattoo would mean they were probably in the military, appropriate given uh, Veterans Day this weekend, um, and they were, you know, they were a Marine, they were uh, in the Navy or something like that, but that shifted dramatically, and have you noticed that shift as well? Like, lots and lots of people have tattoos these days, like 45 million people across the United States have tattoos. There are 20,000 tattoo parlors in the country right now. A new one is added every day. That's a lot of tattooing, a lot of tattooing. Uh, what's interesting is 17% of the people who get tattoos regret their tattoos. You know what the number, reason, number one reason was? They put someone's name on their shoulder or on their back and their relationship has died and so they want that name removed. It's fascinating to me. If you, if you do have a tattoo, you are, I guess, as I said, 45 million people. But apparently, of that 45 million pe people, one in five have more than five tattoos. I've heard that from people who get tattoos in the past. Once they get one, they want a second and a third, and that seems like it's, it perpetuates itself. Millennials, those presently who are 18 through, say, 30, who will be our leaders in the next 20 to 30 years from now, leading our nation, leading our communities, uh, some 36% of those people have tattoos and probably are growing. So you can anticipate a day coming when the President of the United States will have a tattoo. Probably the first time ever, right? 
Uh, more women than men regret having tattoos. What I find perhaps most fascinating is the amount of money involved. $1.65 billion annually. That's a lot of money. Fair enough. Uh, I, listen, I have uh, lots of friends who have tattoos, and um, a friend of ours who re just very recently died, uh, her husband has sleeves that start here and go all the way up, you know, and so she wanted to have something that reflected her husband, so she decided she was going to get a tattoo, a small tattoo right here on her wrist, not her wrist, but kind of in this area of her hand, so she went to the local parlor, and, but she didn't know it involved pain. <laughs> Hello? So... She, the, the first needle went in with the first dart of it, and she goes, stop. About five seconds later, she goes, ow. And that's all she ever had done right there, that one little dot right there, and that was the extent of her tattoo. But I, I've decided that I am joining the crowd. Decided, as a matter of fact, over the summer, you may not have known this, I had some work done. <laughs> what do I look like? Looks pretty good, right? <laughs> the reason I've told you all this is because what scripture we're going to look at today, believe it or not, has something to do with a tattoo that I might consider getting. It's going to take us a long time for you to get to the point where you hear the story of why I might consider a tattoo. We have to do a lot of background work, a lot of scriptural work for you to understand all this. I want you to hang with me today, all right? We are continuing on with our look of, at the overall scripture. Remember we said the scripture started in Genesis where everything was good. Sin gets in the way. God has a plan to deal with that sin. And it ends in Revelation, this big arc of a story over all 66 books of the Bible where it ends in Revelation where everything is all good and again. And so we've made our way through the Old Testament. We're now into the New Testament. And um, last week we looked, we began our start and our looking at Jesus. And we focused particularly on his humanity that the Son of God came fully as a human. And you heard me say last week that we're very glad that Jesus came and was fully human because his human nature reminds us that God knows about what it's like to experience life as a human. With all the challenges and with all the triumphs that we have, that we are very glad that God in heaven is aware of you know, when we have really good days, he's experienced really good days as God in the flesh, experienced bad days as God in the flesh. And so we looked at Jesus' humanity. But for today, we're going to shift it a little bit. We're going to flip the coin, and we're going to talk about Jesus' divinity, which is significantly different than his humanity. Scripture tells us that Jesus had two natures, very, all completely human and completely divine. We're going to read in Matthew chapter 16 where this is brought forward in a very profound way. And as we read, I just want you to be aware of where this is taking place. Look on this map, if you will, please. And you'll see that Caesarea Philippi is up, on the up in the northern part of, uh, of the ancient land of Israel, the first century of Jesus. Now, you can see the Dead Sea down there in the south. And Jerusalem is quite close to the Dead Sea. You go further north and you get the Sea of Galilee. And then from there you go north to Caesarea Philippi. Please make note, there's also a Caesarea out on the west coast. There are two Caesareas. And so uh, when you're reading scripture, you probably need to be aware of which one is being spoken of. Jesus spent most of his ministry up in the area of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he um, 
That's where he was born up that way. I'm not quite so much, I should rephrase that. That's where he lived, okay? And he, he certainly started his ministry up there. Make, he would make trips down to Jerusalem, go back to the Sea of Galilee area. So we are looking today at up at Caesarea Philippi. We read in verse 13 of Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, um, We've been doing ministry now for a little while, guys, and I would like to know how people are responding to my ministry, and you know that I'm the son of man. And it's kind of like, a, it's, it's a, a dipstick check. How, how are things going? How are people responding to who I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he says, okay, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter's answer is a dramatic shift in the disciples' understanding of Jesus. Here we ha we're gonna see Peter respond in a way that Peter realizes that not only is Jesus human, but that Jesus is absolutely divine. Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by, by, by my Father in heaven. You've had some divine inspiration. You've had some divine, the work of the Holy Spirit has played into your life right here, and you suddenly know something you didn't know before. And then Jesus has a few more comments that probably we won't be able to get to today. He says, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I'll build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We may have to pass on that for today, come back to it another time. And then he ordered his disciples, who now know that he is divine, who now know that he is the Messiah, that Jesus has affirmed, yes, I am the Messiah. He doesn't want them to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. Part of the reason is um, the Messiah has to die. And if the people of Israel have fully figured out that he's the Messiah, they probably would elevate him to a position he wouldn't die. So that's a long story that we won't be able to get into today. But here's what's important today. That Peter identifies Jesus as being divine. So we love the fact that Jesus is human. That he knows about our suffering and joys. The two different days or continuum of days that we have. Some days are really good. Some days are really bad. But Jesus knows all about that. And that's really good. But what Peter is saying, I've struggled to tell you what this, what this really, in some ways it's, it's more at stake. And I'm a little bit cautious in how I say that because it's really important that Jesus is human, yes. But if he was only human, we'd have a problem because then it would be, he would just be a lovely rabbi who has some nice teachings and some ways in which we should live our lives. It would not really impact our eternal destiny. So it's important that Jesus is not only human, but that he is also divine because we need more than a God who can sympathize with us. We need more than somebody who can say, well, I'm sorry that your life is the pits right now. That's nice. We need more than a God who can say, I had days when life was the pits too. Well, that's nice too. But we actually need somebody who can do more than be a common sympathizer. We need someone who can secure our future and our eternal destiny. And the only way that happens is through Jesus Christ being divine. Now, theologians have a way of describing this. It's big words. We call it substitutionary atonement. 
You go, whoa, do we really have to get into that? Those are like big words, and I don't like big words. And So in order to help you begin to want to think about and talk about substitutionary atonement, I've given some thought with some help for a fellow British governor, Michael McIntyre, about some ways in which maybe uh, big words can frighten us and we, we shouldn't let them. Uh, and so... Um, he, for example, he, he's asked this question, which I think is legitimate, that he says, we used to walk down the pavement, but now we walk down the sidewalk. Why is that? Because if we weren't smart enough to know that if we're dry, walking down the road, we should walk on the side where the cars are not? <laughs> How silly is this? You Couldn't you just say walk down the road, walk down the pavement? No, no, walk down the sidewalk. Or here's another idea. We have, maybe in your home or in your office or in your boss's office or whatever, you have a waste paper basket. You used to have a trash can. You knew trash went in there. But for some reason or other, we gave up knowing whether or not where trash went. And we said, well, we'll only put waste, that's for waste paper. Like were people putting reams of perfectly good paper in the basket before? So we had to give them a little help. Well, now it's the waste paper basket. We used to go to the YMCA and play squash, but people didn't know what to do, so we changed it to racquetball. So the people would know, when you go to play squash, you take a racket at a ball. That's very helpful, I guess. Kind of crazy stuff like that, right? Or we used to go to the optometrist and get glasses, but now we get eyeglasses. Like, do some people go to the optometrist expecting to get knee glasses? What's with that? These are my, these are my glasses, and I... What? Or the, the, people used to go horse riding, and they'd ride horse, but now we go horseback riding. Why is that? Were some people riding on the belly? <laughs> you know, riding on the head while I'm going horse head riding? I mean, that's silly. No, we have to t explain to people. We are going horseback riding, and I want to go, and we've got this big fancy word, two words, substitutionary atonement. You go, huh? If, we're, if we have to explain horse riding, do we really want to explain substitutionary atonement? Yeah, let me see if I can help you out. We said, I said a few moments ago, Genesis, all is well, big mess, Revelation is all, all is well. And in the middle of that mess, we know that God is on mission. God is on mission to remove all evil from his good world. He started out good, it's going to be good in the future, and so God's mission is to get rid of all the mess and its corrosive effects, sin, if you will, and he wants to do it in a way that doesn't involve getting rid of humans as well, because if you think about it, where does the mess of life come from? For the most part, it's us, right? And frankly, any, any struggles within the cosmos, the scriptures tell us, started with Adam and Eve choosing sin. And with that, death was introduced and decay and all kinds of mess. And so it all comes back to us. And so God is on a mission to go from good, where it got messed up, back to good. But he can do it that in a way without getting rid of humans. Well, yeah, he can. He started way back in the Old Testament. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Leviticus chapter 16 that explains uh, what God did to start the process of getting all things good. And as we look at this, you'll see why we're going to get, eventually you'll see why it's important that Jesus be divine in this process. In Leviticus 16, uh, God says, now, you as people of Israel, the, the nation of Israel, you've got some sin in your national life, and you have some sin in your individual lives. And I want, us to, get, I want, to, I want to see that sin forgiven. And so what would happen was that um, two goats would be brought 
to the temple and the high priest, the most, the most highest spiritual man in the nation, those two goats would be brought to that high priest. And both goats are going to die, but in two different ways. The first goat is going to be taken inside the temple and is going to be sacrificed. Literally, you've got the stones on the altar and the blood from that goat as that goat is burned before God. You can think of it as a very big barbecue, if you will. As that goat is burned before God and the aromas of meat being seared goes to heaven. It's a pleasing aroma to God. The blood of that goat covers all those stones. And that was indicative, that was to say, the blood of this animal is covering the sin of Israel. Then the second goat was brought to the, to the high priest. And read with me, Leviticus chapter 16, you'll see exactly what happened. The high priest then, it's going to be on the screens, he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it, while he's holding his hand on the goat, he's to confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And then, what's going to happen? He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task, and the goat will carry on itself all their sins, all, the whole nation's sins, is going to carry that. The weight of that sin is going to be on the head of the goat, carry it to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. Now, the reason that a fellow went with it was to make sure goats would have a predilection, if you will, an inclination to come back into camp. But a man goes with it to make sure that that goat goes way out there and can never find its way. And it's left out there to be alone and to die. And for the sins of the people of Israel, forgiven at the altar and then banished and sent away from the community. What does that mean when we say then that Jesus died for our sins? Isn't there something similar? If you think about it this way, Jesus is on the cross, right? And what happens to him on the cross? He dies, and we know that his blood covers our sin. There, if you will, is a picture of the first goat. But then the second goat, what happens there? Well, Jesus is um, on the cross, and as he's dying, we are aware of this, that he says, um, Father, forgive them. They don't realize who they're, not, who they're killing, that I'm your son. And then he says, after that, as he's about to die, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? And his humanity cries out because he realizes he is completely alone. And this son of God who's been in relationship with God for in the entirety of eternity is suddenly broken in relationship with God the Father. And what has he done? He is banished. He is alone. He is sent away carrying our sin. His blood forgives us, and his aloneness is us being sent away. I mean, our sin being sent away. Do you know what that goat that was sent away was called? Scapegoat. Ah, you know what a scapegoat is, right? A scapegoat is somebody who um, takes the blame for other people's deeds. And actually, when we use the word scapegoat, it comes right out of Leviticus chapter 16. So Jesus dies with the weight of humanity's sin on his head. And you want to go, okay, why didn't God just come up with a different system? Because that seems really gruesome and really ugly as a way to get rid of sin. Why, was, why didn't God just come along as Jesus was born 
and say, there's my son. He's going to, he's going to show you really good ways to live and he's going, to, he's going to give you how to handle relationships and how to handle struggle and how to do life in a new, whole new way. Why didn't God just say, in, in terms of all the other stuff, and just follow him and everything will be right. Well, the problem is, or the issue is, the matter is, is that God is holy. And when we say God is holy, we say that part of that holiness is that God can never be in touch with any sin whatsoever. And yet, uh, he wants to be in relationship with humans. Remember we said he's on mission to get from good to good, sins in the world, he wants, he wants to do that without getting rid of humans. So the only way he can get humans to be in touch with him is to get rid of their sin. And the only way he can get rid of their sin is because of the goats, one dying and one being sent away. Maybe this will help you. Imagine with me uh, that um, you're going to leave from this, uh, from worship today, and uh, tomorrow it's been a, you've, you've learned that you're going to have surgery of some sort. That means probably you've, you've left the doctor's office a few days ago with explicit instructions how to get ready for surgery. That's going to involve maybe some surgical soap. You have to have a shower. You have to use a clean towel. You have to be completely clean when you walk into the hospital tomorrow. And then when you get there, they're going to lay you on a, they're going to ask you to get ready and they're going to lay you on a cot, if you will. There's going to be somebody that's going to come in and swab the area that you're going to get surgery in. And then they're going to, they're going to wheel you down the hallway and you're going to start seeing people with masks on and special clothes and shoes and you go into the surgery room. And if you're still awake, they'll, you'll be there as they kind of move you from one table, from that, pardon me, from that bed to a table, and then everyone around you, you can't recognize them because they're all completely covered with masks and eye stuff and eyeglasses, not knee glasses, we you know, eyeglasses, the whole bit. And, and, uh, and, and the room you're in, if all things are well, is 100% sterile. And you want it to be 100% sterile. How many germs are you allowed to have in the room and it still be sterile? None, right? If you can think of it this way then, we as humans are infected with the corrosive effects of sin. And because God is holy and for him to remain holy can never be in touch with, with sin, he can never be in touch with what we're infected with. And so Jesus Christ came, the scapegoat was needed, so that sin will be banished, will be forgiven at the altar and is sent out into the wilderness. Jesus died bearing your sin. Jesus died bearing my sin so that you and me as sinners can be in a relationship with God and that God's mission from good to good is still in play and yet it's not a case of banishing humans but our sin has now been banished and we get to be in a relationship with him. It's all good news. As long as we respond, if you will, in some particular ways. I've got just a few of those particular ways today. The first response is we need to be people who surrender to what God has done. And when I say surrender, I don't mean just simple acquiescence. Acquiescence is, well, if I don't do this, I'm headed to hell. You know, God doesn't want that kind of surrender. God wants an active participation on your part that says, I am choosing to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I am choosing to walk with him we call that conversion. We call that, we say, I'm going from someone who is covered in sin, 
Even one tiny sin, one little germ of sin that has now made me a sinner. I'm no longer sterile, if you will. And that one little sin is causing me to have no relationship with God at all. But if the moment I say, I cross over the line and I say, I become a Christian, that means I'm relying on my eternal destiny because of the work of Jesus Christ. I can't do that by myself. I cannot make enough right decisions to ever get out of sin. But through the grace of God in Jesus Christ that's found on his cross, I accept and I apply, if you will. I, I, I fully take on the gift of grace and the responsibility of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We have that choice. Because God says, I'm not going to force it on you. You can choose to reject. You can choose to accept. Because to force it on us, we lose free will. Then we are just simply robots. But we're not robots. We're humans with minds that can make decisions for ourselves. Coming out of that then, we say, I'm going to be a person of repentance. I'm not only going to only accept Jesus Christ, I'm going to live my life in a way that's different so that if I'm typically going this way in my daily events, I'm going to stop and I'm going to say, how would Jesus live in this event? And I'm saying, well, it wouldn't be this way. And since my sins are forgiven, my response to the grace is to repent and walk in the other direction. And say, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be different than the people around me. You know why? Because I'm not only going to accept and surrender. I'm not only going to, um, if you will, I'm not only going to um, be a person of repentance. I'm also going to be a person of worship. Namely, how will, it, how will this event over here, as I'm moving it over here, how will this honor God? See, people come to church and they think, well, I've done worship for a week. And I'm, I'm, I've met the mark for what's required of me. But may I remind you, friends, worship is not only what you do here in terms of raising your hands and singing before the Lord, great, but worship is about how will each event of my life bring honor to Jesus Christ. So this, this afternoon, if you're headed to a restaurant, will the server be glad that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? What sort of tip are you gonna leave? How demanding are you gonna be? You, you, we, take, we, put on, we put on lenses that say, everything that I do throughout life, I'm gonna be asking, does this honor Jesus Christ? Um, when you're speaking with the people you work with or the people in your neighborhood, are they glad that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? They might know you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but are they glad you're a follower? Uh, let me ask you this, when you're driving, are they glad you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Cut you off in the name of Jesus. <laughs> because we do it in Jesus' name, does that make it right? Let me tell you a story that I'm not planning to tell, but uh, I've told it before, because it, but it, it I, uh, pardon me if you've heard this before, but it's just a story out of my life that's so incredibly indicative of how we might do this. A number of years ago, I was driving north on Highway 51. And uh, you know, as you come out of town, you're going up and you pass uh, St. T, and you're coming up and you get to Pershing, and there's the, the light right there. And if you stop at the light, think about this, McDonald's is off over there, right? Culver's is here, there's a gas station, an AT&T store, and Subway and everything right here. Does that make sense? You know where I am? I'm in the center lane, and right in front of me was an older model red car. 
and across the back of that, and about like this long and about this high. Well, maybe that, there, there. Uh, I don't want to speak preacher-like. I'll, I'll make it right. It's about like that, okay? Is a big uh, bumper sticker on the trunk, and it gives the name of a church in town. And I'm thinking, that's brilliant. That's a brilliant idea. Think about, for what would it cost? Maybe a nickel a piece? How many cars could we have with the church's name on it like that? And, and we, it would be a very inexpensive public relations move to have all the cars of First Christian Church people driving around town. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go back to the office because I was headed to the office. I'm going to come to the office and I'm going to figure out how much this is going to cost. I'm going to put a staff member on that responsibility. That's my plan. Just before the light turned green, the driver's side of the car opened up and the guy took his ashtray and dumped all his cigarette butts right there on the road, right in front of me. And it was a pile about, it was a, he'd done a lot of smoking for a long time and not cleaning his car. I'm thinking, I am not buying bumper stickers. Because I don't know how well you drive. I don't know if you would represent the church well. And if you've got a fish sign on the back of your car, are people glad that you're a Christian and identifying as a Christian? Is Jesus glad that you're identifying as a Christian? If we're people of worship, we ask, how will God be honored in everything we do? The Apostle Paul put it this way. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in light of the fact that Jesus died for you, God's mercy, that God in grace sent Jesus and his blood covers your sin and your sin is now banished away from you. In view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers and sisters, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, continue to think about how is Jesus going to do this? How is Jesus going to do this? How is he going to live through me? Because if you can do that, what is the result of that? It's pleasing to God, and it is your act of your true and proper worship. In other words, our worship is what we are doing daily. Not, I'm glad we gathered together as a congregation, but what we are doing each day also is an aspect of worship, which, you've been waiting, takes us all the way back to this and my most recent tattoo, the only tattoo I've ever had. There's a story that I came across six or 12 months ago that I've kept for today. It's about tattoos. And you're gonna hear about some people in Northern Indiana and Utah who were tattooed by the government in the midst of the Cold War. Watch and see how this might relate to us today. Thousands of Hoosiers who grew up in northwest Indiana during the Korean War have permanent proof of the fear many felt about a possible atomic attack at the time. As Mary-Kate Hamilton reports, the government gave them special tattoos that identified their blood types. You wouldn't know by looking at Carol Ann Mikesell and Anella Pekovich Dixon that they have something unique in common. So when I said, well, I have a tattoo, and they looked at me like, you old lady have a tattoo? My favorite days of teaching each semester, I would start out by, I have a tattoo. And the kids go, no! But the deeply personal decision to get a tattoo isn't one they made for themselves. A study published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology 
says by May of 1952, 30,000 citizens in Northwest Indiana received a tattoo of their blood type above their left hip or chest. It was called Operation Tat Type and was born out of fear that there would be an increased need for blood during the Korean conflict. The idea was to make people walking blood banks to enable on-the-spot blood transfusions in an emergency. The idea caught on in just two parts of the country, two communities in Utah and Northwest Indiana. Mike Sell and Pekovich Dixon both grew up in Gary and received blood type tattoos during the school day in elementary school. I remember this large lady um, kind of holding me over her, la her hip and lifting my dress and then you heard this buzzing and a little bit of a sting and you walked back to class and the kids looked to see if you cried. The fear of an atomic attack gripped the Lake County community, but the tattooing didn't last long. When the Korean War ended, the demand for blood dropped, and ultimately, Operation Tat-Type failed. The study states that doctors didn't trust the tattoos because of possible errors, and the trial never caught on nationwide. Interesting, eh? Can I tell you, I don't know my blood type. I've, I've been told it many times, and I have physician friends in the congregation who've kind of worked with me over the years, and they could look on medical records and tell me what blood type I have, I don't remember offhand. I, I do know I have a problem with my blood. The Red Cross points it out to me every time I go and try to um, give blood. Uh, you go to the Red Cross and they ask questions about this, that, and the other regarding your lifestyle and so forth and so on. And I, and I pass all of that. And then they say, did you ever live in Britain? And I say, well, yeah, we were in Britain. I mean, it was our home base, so to speak, for many years, on and off from 1978 through to 1985. And they say, well, you can't give blood today. Why is that? Well, that's when mad cow disease was around, and um, we don't know if you have it. I go, well, that's nice to know. <laughs> and so we can't give blood. They say, we don't test for mad cow, but maybe we will in a year or so. So come back in a year or eight, and so a year, 18 months later, I go back and try to give blood, and I'll go through the whole process again. They say, no, you might have mad cow disease, and so far it hasn't manifested itself. If it does, I'll let you know, or you may be able to see it by yourself. But nonetheless, so I don't know if I ever had wanted to get my blood type right here, I might have, it wouldn't work, because uh, I couldn't be a walking transfusion person. But actually, if I was to get a tattoo about, right here, about my blood, you know what I'd want to get tattooed right there? Covered by Jesus' blood. See, if the blood of the goat was poured out over those stones and the blood of the second goat, pardon me, the life of the second goat was set in banishment, that's what I'm relying on in Jesus Christ, covered by the blood of Jesus. That's where I live, that's where I breathe, where I have my very being, Scripture says, in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, for my friends here today, across the congregation, Lord, in the various places where we meet, I pray, Lord, that all of us would rely on the work of Jesus Christ. We're thankful, God, that he came to this earth as a human so that we would know that you know what it means to live as a human. But Lord, we're also thankful, and, and I guess in some ways more thankful, to, you could say, for the fact that this divine Jesus who never knew sin 
wasn't that he was just a human dying on the cross and sinful in and of himself. He never knew sin. Sin had never touched him. Your very son, divine, willing to take on our sin, willing to take the weight of our sin on his shoulders, on his head. So God, I, I guess you could say that like the high priest of ancient days, we could in our mind's eye imagine you taking our sin and placing, putting your hands on his head, if you will, and pronouncing forgiveness for us. And as Jesus was banished on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We realize, God, that our sins are gone out in the wilderness, never to return. Thank you for that act. Thank you for that grace. Thank you, Lord, for those of us who've accepted what that means in our lives. And Lord, yet for those here today who haven't done that, who have, they're still just kind of wandering and, and wondering about how all this religious stuff applies to them. Lord, I pray for that man, for that woman, for that young person right now you would graciously call them to you and they would accept the work of Jesus Christ in his life, in her life, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's name.